Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We Jews believe it's not religion until it makes demands on you. That's very serious for us. It has to ask the question, how am I going to live in the face of this truth? And only then does it become serious. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. Good grief, is it good to be back? <laughs> it's been a while. In our usual format here. Yeah. With some explosive content. We, yeah, like, if <laughs> we, this could not be more polar opposite than the last episode we released with, uh, with Kevin. You know, a little light comedy, you know, an easy, like, easy in, you know, nothing like too, like, dense theologically or whatever contrast is a very very useful teaching tool (laughs) contrast is very useful this one might give you a headache (laughs) or a good way or a warm fuzzy in a good way a warm fuzzy headache so like this is one that um i think i kind of came across them by accident i think way back when like adam and i have been talking about doing um trying to get people of other other religions other faiths to come on and represent and um so just in kind of researching and digging for people who would be like cool guests, you know, maybe not necessarily somebody who you've heard of before. Mm -hmm. I came across this guy. He's got this incredible book called Radical Judaism. And uh, initially, I think we're going to use him for our religious pluralism series, but we're like, it's, this is so good and applicable to what we're doing. Yes. Like we just got to let him talk about whatever he wants to talk about and just have him on. And for, for those of us, you that have been following this show or just doing a lot of expansive reading on your own, maybe you're just a, you know, super nerd like us. And that's why you're clicking with us. Um, an author that we reference a lot, a thinker, uh, scholar, theologian, um, Abraham Joshua Heschel obviously is deceased. (laughs) He's no longer with us in body, in body, although in spirit, he's still here. Um, but Heschel is just uh, somebody that we lean heavily, heavily on their work. We just absolutely love it. God in Search of Man, The Prophets, um, his, in my opinion, one of his best works, The Sabbath. I mean, just absolutely incredible. Now, we couldn't get him, obviously, but this guest was his understudy. Yeah. And uh, disciple, really. And so who do we have here today? Because this is very, very, very special. This, yeah, this is honestly um, ended up being one of the coolest, I think, interviews we've ever done. Um, it's Rabbi Arthur Green. Yes. And uh, we had no idea until we sat down with him and we're just kind of going through his backstory that he was even like a, a student of Heschel. That was just a bonus thing that was thrown in. Yep. So for so those of you that want to get some Jewish perspective, Jewish roots, um, this guy was an understudy of Heschel and he has this radical Judaism that we're going to talk about on this episode and then debrief a little bit afterwards. But tell us a little bit about Art Green and we'll get rolling here. 
Yeah, he's uh, he's the founding dean and currently rector of the rabbinical school and Irving Brudnick professor of Jewish philosophy and religion at Hebrew College. Um, he he went to Brandis. He's got it. I think he got his PhD from Brandis, if I remember correctly. Uh, but he's just a brilliant guy. Oh, um, he's got a bunch of books you should check out. Um, he's written commentaries on a number of of Old Testament books. Um, but like I said, Radical Judaism. Um, this book is just insane. Adam and I can't recommend it enough. It just, I think it really flows well with what we're doing um, on our show here. Uh, Radical Ju- Judaism, Rethinking God and Tradition. Terrible title. We're not, I think we even told him that. Like, not, yeah. not great branding on it. it. It's not a book that jumps out at you like a, like a Rob Bell book or a Pete yeah. Rollins book or something like that. <laughs> but, but for those of you that love um, the more materialist spirituality, that love the more like, uh, almost like a Paul Tillich approach, yeah. um, or, or some of the... Um, even some of the writings of Rohr, Pete Rollins, like there's just a lot of resonance with what this guy is doing with language and symbol and, you know, ancient tradition, perennial tradition, and we just unpacked a lot. So let's just let the uh, yeah. episode speak for itself. Without further ado, we give you Art Freaking Green. Rabbi Green, uh, we are delighted, we are ready, and uh, we are just so happy to have you with us here today on the Deconstructionist Podcast. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Thank you, my pleasure. We would re- you've got a really interesting story, and for those of, uh, those of our listeners that, that get a copy of your book that John and I are just devouring right now, it's called uh, Radical Judaism, you give little snippets uh, of your story, and a lot of us that are listening to this podcast, I know John and I both have um, stories of how, you know, we were raised this way and we, you know, we felt these kinds of things and these kinds of desires and found ourselves, you know, then maybe in this place. And we kind of call that, you know, a deconstruction. And a lot of us came from like uh, hyper-religious backgrounds and we're kind of wrestling with pulling some of that off and, you know, looking at things a different way. And I know you have a really good story. If you could just kind of take us back through your story and how you kind of ended up with the the style of teaching and the perspective that you currently have, which is just so wonderful. If you could just kind of give us uh, some insight into that. Well, my goodness, we could spend all our time on that, but I'll try <laughs> to do it with some brevity. Um, I'm an American Jew, third generation in America. That means my grandparents were all immigrants from Eastern Europe. My parents were born here shortly after their parents uh, immigrated at the turn of the 20th century. I was raised in a good Jewish atheist home. Dad was a militant atheist. His parents were already militant atheists from the old country. They had left behind their parents' Hasidic piety when they moved from small town to a big city in Poland. And most of my father's aunts and uncles actually were Communist Party members, uh, which was not unusual for Jews in the Bronx at that time of history. My grandparents were not communists, but they shared that absolutely negative view of religion. Religion was the opiate of the masses. It was old-fashioned. It was reactionary. And uh, we were liberated, intelligent people who had gotten away from that nonsense. My dad married a woman, my mother, from a fairly traditional Jewish family, not Orthodox. My grandfather's tailor shop was open on Saturdays, so he didn't observe the Sabbath strictly. 
But upstairs in the tarot shop in my grandmother's apartment, everything was strictly kosher. There were certain things you didn't do on the Sabbath, and uh, and um, candles were lit and so on, and, and lots of personal piety was observed. I became very close to my mother's parents. The story is that my mother died of cancer when I was 11 years old. My mother's only brother died two years later. My grandparents were absolutely devastated. And I was the grandchild um, from among seven or eight who was really attracted to old people, mm. who loved stories about the old country, who was interested in religion. When I was seven or eight years old, I was taking my mother to a temple on Friday nights. I don't quite understand why. Um, she was she was willing to go along with me. Maybe she was not quite as an athe- as atheist as her husband was, mm. and um, maybe she maybe already being ill, she needed the consolations of religion. So my mother began it, but my grandparents. I started going to my grandparents every weekend for every Jewish holiday, and I entered into the world of my grandparents' East European piety. The synagogue they went to was unaffiliated, old fashioned, the corner of Eastern Europe in northern New Jersey transported into northern New Jersey. And I took to it like a duck to water. Mm-hmm. I was a young, I was a child among older people. And the truth is, as a kid, uh, I was terrified of kids my age, but I got along very well with old people who fed you lots of chicken soup and and and, and, and Yiddish conversation and, and, and what have you. So I became quite observant, quite tr- traditionally observant as an adolescent. Uh, that became the subject of terrible battles with my father, who thought it was all ridiculous nonsense. And um, and I fought for it. By the time I started college, I was 16 years old when I went over to college. And I left home being having become an Orthodox Jew. But um, that only lasted about a year and a half into college. Wow. As, as I turned 18, I realized that I didn't really believe in it. I was using God as a way to seek consolation from the unresolved realm of my mother's death. Wow. I was, uh, I was pretending that I believed. I was deeply attached to a kind of compulsive need to do everything right and please God and please my grandmother and make sure I was a good boy. And on the eve of my 18th birthday, I went out of the dormitory to town, to a nearby town, I walked into a restaurant and ate two non-kosher hamburgers, and that was the end of my period of adolescent piety. <laughs> Man. Uh, I, th- I think after one hamburger, hamburger I might have repented. <laughs> it, was just, it was just too good out there. <laughs> so I gave it all up. I was, I, was, I was secular. I no longer believed. And I tried for a year or so to say, I am a secular person. I'm a secular Jew. I tried on intensive Zionism for a while as an alternative to religion. I tried on what was called Yiddish cultural Judaism, which was a sort of, we are members of a people and we have an ancient literature and a beautiful language, but but we don't believe in religion anymore. That lasted for about a year. And then I discovered, you know, that was the year when I went through, I would say, um, Secular existentialism, I went from from Sartre to Camus, and from Camus I wound up with Kafka, and uh, I was reading Nietzsche in three or four different courses in college that year, God is Dead, the Joy. I went from the joy of God is Dead, which means the old authority system is broken, mm-hmm. the, to the loneliness of Kafka, my God, there's no God out there, there's also no meaning and no reason to live and no 
and no air to breathe and nothing to love. And then I, then I went to Camus who said, if there's no meaning, you have to make meaning for yourself. I remember I read when I was 18 or 19, a book that influenced me greatly. I reread it a couple of years ago and it's still a nice book. And that is a, an auto, a spiritual autobiography of a man called Nikos Kazantzakis, great Greek writer. He wrote an autobiography called Report to Greco, where he talks about he talks about how mankind has been struggling to reach the top of the mountaintop because we've been told at the top of the mountain, if you reach around the top of the mountain, you will find the face of God. And the human being with the last ounce of his strength finally pulls and pulls and pulls himself up the mountain. And at the top of the mountain, he reaches around and he feels nothing but sheer cliff. Wow. He says, what, he says, what do you do at that moment? You take a chisel out of your pocket and begin carving the face of God for yourself. And that felt like what I was doing. I had no longer had faith, but I had to recreate meaning. But then when I was 20, people began introducing me to the Jewish mystical tradition, the mystical tradition which had mostly been rejected by modern Jews, but still existed in some corners of the Hasidic world and the, and the world of ultra-piety. And in the mystical tradition, I found a new understanding of God and a new understanding of what it meant to be a religious human being that spoke to my heart and brought me back in a very, to a very different kind of religion. It wasn't about compulsive observance. It wasn't about guilt. It wasn't about the old man in the sky who was watching and counting your, counting your good deeds and your bad deeds. All that was gone. But there was, there was a deep resonance of a, of a oneness of the universe, of a oneness of being, of a, of a deep mystery that, that brought us all together and unified us with life. And I felt that was the kind of religious language my heart had been looking for all along. And so I came back to Judaism, but on a, on a much more profound level and in a much more liberated way, and began recreating a Judaism for myself that I now have been fashioning since I was 20, and I'm now 76. So for the past 56 years, I've been involved in this ongoing quest to try to find a, um, a spiritually rich and at the same time intellectually honest and uh, an open-hearted and loving and non, a non-guilt-producing form of Judaism for myself and other Jews like me. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. I, I, I love what you say at the very, very beginning of your book to kind of follow th- this train of thought here. Uh, you say, for me, God is not an intellectual proposition, but rather the ground of life itself. And, and this sounds a lot like uh, within the Christian tradition— um, the way Paul Tillich uh, describes the divine, or even in the Hindu tradition, um, you know what they what they describe as the ground of being. What what do you mm-hmm. mean when you say uh, the ground of life itself? It's the oneness out of which all multiplicity springs. It's the silence out of which all sound grows, and against which all sound against the background of which all sound has to be heard. Mm. It's the darkness that 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 is the source for that which says let there be light um, it's it's the um, it exists prior to everything else but that priority is not really one of time it's one of structure or logic 
It's the, it's the undefined one out of which all forms emerge. All of them are part of the one, all of them go back to the one, but the one is infinitely more than the sum of its parts. It's the one that embraces all beings. And you know the Hebrew word for God is yud heh vav I don't know if it's my book I transliterate it. I write it Y-H-W-H. We're not allowed to pronounce that word in Hebrew. It's too mysterious. But it really is an impossible, it is an impossible conjugation of the verb to be. The original Hebrew name of God really should be translated is, was, will be. Because it's past, present, and future all sort of smushed together in a form that doesn't exist in the language. So that's kind of what I mean by it. Oh, that's great. Um, also in your book, and, and I, I found this to be, uh, this to hit close to home for us, one of the things that I think, even within the tradi- uh, Christian tradition, that we seem to be fighting against is this postmodern idea of, of um, uh, religion being this um, list of, of things that you check off in terms of, uh, you know, I... I, I have great attendance, I, I behave myself, and therefore, you know, we call it escape plan theology. Um, and it's turned into this very, um, this morality play, essentially. And you talk about this even within Judaism, um, uh, this modern concept of God that's focused on morality and, and human behavior and things uh, along those lines. But you say that is not God, and you focus instead on origins, which I thought was really fascinating. Why is this an important distinction? Well, let me just quickly say that morality is good. I believe in morality. I'm not, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not disparaging it. But it seems to me that the one is bigger than that. Um, because the one is the one that exists behind and before any distinctions. Just like that includes the distinction between light and darkness, it also includes the distinction between good and evil. So that, um, so that the one has to embrace all that is. Um, but I think there is a morality that proceeds from our faith in oneness. I want to say that very clearly. Um, I think religion is a moral system. But my morality comes out of a sense of I am one with all others. I'm one with all other human beings. I'm one with all creatures. Why would I want to do violence to myself? Why would I want to harm another part of myself? In Christian language, you probably call it Corpus Christi, the the the, the single the single body of Christ of which all beings are a part. And not just all Christians, of course, but all beings. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. In, in, in Judaism, we would call it the form of primordial man, Adam Kadmon, in Kabbalistic language. And that's the same thing, the primordial Adam that contains all souls within it. So we are. So I believe, I believe in the oneness of humanity and the oneness of being. And that calls forth, that makes moral demand on me, of course. Uh, you know, it's not religion... We Jews believe it's not religion until it makes demands on you. That's very serious for us. It has to ask the question, how am I going to live in the face of this truth? And only then does it become serious. Mm. That that call of Sinai, however we reinterpret Sinai, that call of Sinai is still very much there for us. The sort of, the sort of, how are you going, how are you going to respond to my call?
one of the, one of the first things that struck me in your introduction is just a phrase that you use, but I can tell it's a very important phrase to you. Um, radical amazement being the, the starting point of your life. Would you just go, just talk about that? What do you mean by that? Why is it so important? Well, that's not my phrase. That's my teacher's phrase. Yeah. I had the great privilege of being a close student and disciple of Abraham Joshua Heschel. Oh, wow. And Heschel, <laughs> wow. And, and, and Heschel writes about radical amazement. I was in rabbinical school for a year and I was about to quit because it was an awfully confining uh, place with a, that was giving out an awful lot of, I thought, primitive theology. And one of my teachers saw I was about to leave, and he said, if you had a program of private study with Professor Heschel, would you stay in rabbinical school? And I said, yes. And I became Heschel's private student for four years. And that was one of the very great privileges of my life. Oh, my Heschel gosh. Used, Heschel used the phrase radical amazement. If you go to his great, great book, God in Search of Man, the first hundred pages are all about radical amazement as the, as the very basis of religion. Uh, Heschel talked about how Heschel had a phrase, I asked for wonder. God asked me what gift I what gift I would like to have more than anything else in the world. Uh, would, would it be wisdom? Would it be wealth? And he said, I asked for wonder. I asked to maintain my child's sense of wonder throughout my life. And uh, religion begins with a sense of wonder and preserving it and evoking it in people who are who are jaded and conventional is one of the things a real religious teacher is all about, reawakening the sense of wonder. Yeah, wonder. Man, I think a, a lot of people in our generation, um, you know, this podcast is called The Deconstructionist Podcast, and it's a lot of people wrestling with um, the tradition they've been giving, been given, and like you, um, seeking to uh, find a home some, somewhere in it where, you know, there, there's a new balance or some new meaning being found. And a lot of us, are getting in touch with something that you got in touch with uh, right on the heels of this, you know, kind of thing. This encounter with the mystical tradition. A lot of us are realizing um, that mysticism is a component that our our post enlightenment cerebral rational um, Kantian culture has just really lost sight of. And there's a lot of power and depth and and radical amazement in mysticism. Uh, you said that in mystical tradition saved Judaism from for you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by mysticism and how mysticism saved Judaism for you? Uh, scholars devote uh, whole, whole courses and whole semesters and whole books to, the defi to definitions of mysticism. So I can't say, just say anything too definitive. That's all right. But let, me, let, me, let me throw out a few things. Um, a mystic is a person who believes that. Uh, that the core of religion is the possibility of a direct encounter with God or with the one or with the ultimate truth, uh, that, that there is such a thing as an experience mm. standing directly in the presence of God. And that experience is transformative. It is an experience that is somehow always about lifting a veil or revealing a secret or penetrating more deeply into the nature of the soul, into the nature of the world, into the nature of the text. You have to lift the veil in order to see a deeper truth than that which is immediately apparent. I mean, everything in religion, everything else in religion, the stories, the music, the hymns, the, 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 
dogmas, the, the history, everything else is there to take you to that experience, to lead you to that experience, and then to bring you back from that experience and help you plant it in your daily life and help you uplift your daily life in the face of that experience. That's what it's all about. The whole of religion is about that core, which is leading you to that experience and bringing you back from it. And that experience, coming in many different forms, is always about oneness. Where I thought there were many, there turn out to be. It turns out to be only one. Um, you see the you see the ultimate oneness of being, the core, the core that unites all things. Christians may see it as, as you know the the three parts of the Trinity are one. In, in Judaism, it's around. It, it re- revolves around the phrase "Hero Israel, our God is one." Um, the the Hindu will talk about Atman and Brahman and and overcoming the 10,000 forms of maya. Um, Buddhism will have its own way of talking about it, though it won't use the word God. It will, it will, it will hear that sort of in the, in the breath of life, responding to the breath of life and awareness. Um, there are many different forms of it, but it has, a, it has an ultimate, simpli- the ultimate simplicity of oneness about its truth. And the simplicity of oneness is a beautiful truth. And um, and that's where that's where all the paths lead. I believe I am a, I'm sympathetic. I'm not completely identified with it, but I'm sympathetic to the perenne, the perennialists among scholars of religion who believe that all the all the paths lead to the same truth, and that there is a core of religious experience that unifies spiritual seekers across the world. Even though we speak very different languages, have different symbols and different sounding theologies, there is a mystical core of that of that longing for the one and ability to discover the one, to have glimpses of the one that, that transform one's life. I saw that in the Hasidic masters, and Hasidism is a form of popular mysticism in Judaism. I saw that in the teachings of the Hasidic masters, and I fell in love with it. And uh, somebody, when I was 20 years old, somebody gave me a particular essay in Hebrew about some of the early Hasidic teachings. And I said, yes, this is my religious language. I will speak this language the rest of my life. And I will spend my life trying to translate and, and make this language available to people. And that's what I've done. I've been, I have led a very mission-driven life for the last 56 years. My life is about something. It's about the discovery of that of that inner oneness and the Jewish pathways to it, and the translating and making accessible the uh, the documents and the teachings that uh, that lead there. That's what I do. Wow, and, and we're so glad you did. Uh, we're <laughs> so all, glad we're we're all benef- benefiting from it for sure. But um, one one thing I, I know that you mentioned in the book that I would love for you to expand upon a little bit is you also refer to yourself as a religious humanist. Uh, what what exactly yes. does that mean? I love that phrase so much. I'm glad. I'm glad. Read Martin Buber. Read Heschel. They are religious humanists. They are Jewish religious humanists. But uh, but I I think that I think that Tillich would also be one too. Uh, by by humanism I mean that. Um, there is no God who is going to come and set the world right when we destroy it. 
um, the history of the history of this, uh, the history of civilization, and the fate of this planet are in our hands. God save us, but God won't save us. The God who will save us is the God within us, the God who will motivate us to uh, to wake up and to do something transformative before it's too late. I'm very I'm very involved in, in, in environmental concern and and desperately worried, of course, about what's going on in our nation right now. Um, uh, it's all it's all up to us. We have ultimate responsibility for our lives and for the and for the civilization we have created. And um, that's what I mean by humanism. Humanity is important. Humanity has 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 ultimate concern and ultimate responsibility. But religious humanism means that we won't act on that responsibility until we discover that we live for a deeper purpose, that we, uh, we reflect something of what, of what our tradition calls the image of God, which is to say there's a depth and, a, and an infinity that lies behind our consciousness, which is the consciousness of the one of which we are all part. And until we recognize that, we will not be able to act in a way that will bring about the salvation of our world. Mm. So salvation depends on us, but um, but it will only come in recognizing in recognizing this deeper holistic truth. Sometimes it's hard to hear your voice, but I'm still learning not to listen, and I can't sense this void between your heart and what we're doing. I think this would be the perfect time. Um, one of the, the, the sections of your book that, that I really, really enjoyed, um, enjoyed all of it, but this part in particular, where you talk about God's call to mankind and the question, where are you? And you, you, uh, you look at three specific uh, things or three uh, specific sections um, mind, heart, and deed in terms of being um, ways that we have to uh, answer that question or respond. Um, I wondered if you could go into that a little bit. So that's the first word God speaks to a human being in the Bible, yes? God says, God says to Adam, where are you? That to me is revelation. That's the beginning of revelation. Uh, you know, Judaism is a religion of revelation. In Judaism, the question is not, as it is in Christianity, are you saved? In Judaism, the question is, do you hear God's word? Do you hear God speaking? We are the way, the way Christ is the center of, of a central symbol of religion for Christians. Sinai is the central symbol for Judaism. Do you stand at the mountain and hear God's word? Uh, now, my, uh, uh, the orthodoxy to which I was attracted as a teenager said that you have to believe that every single word of the Torah, the five books of Moses, was spoken by God on Mount Sinai. And I stopped believing that for a whole series of reasons, including biblical criticism. But I still believe there is such a thing as a divine word. That word is the word spoken to Adam, where are you? Now, it's not that God says it in English or in Hebrew or in any other language. That word is addressed to us in the same way it's addressed to us by instinct, the same way every animal hears a voice within it that says, 
eat, thrive, reproduce, eat, reproduce, thrive, eat, drink. It knows what it needs to eat in order to survive. Birds know they have to feed those babies in order for the in order for the thing to for the thing to work. And they bring they bring those worms to the nest. That's that's because a voice within them says, feed, feed those, feed those baby birds. Because of the advances of, 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 of the growth of mind in human beings, we have a voice in us that says, eat, thrive, survive, reproduce, make meaning. Figure out what you're doing here. Where are you? Where are you means, means what, are, what are you doing with your life? Why have you come to exist on this planet? What's your life all about? You are challenged. That's the voice of God. The voice within us, speaking instinctively within us, that says, figure it out. Figure out what you're doing here and do something worthwhile. Now that where are you, for us, is spoken again at Sinai when God says, I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you forth from Egypt. I am that liberating, I am that liberating power that, that rises within you. Worship nothing else as a God. Those first two commandments of Sinai, I am the Lord your God and worship nothing else, are really just a repetition of that divine where are you that calls out to Adam and hence to every human being. And the rest is commentary. The rest is all a way to figure out how to respond to the divine I am and worship nothing else. Those are the essential commandments of our, of our Torah for me. And uh, and they all they all exist in that in that first challenge, where God says, "Where are you?" And I, I I hear that "Where are you?" constantly in my life. Now, when I turned seventy years old, I heard it in a whole different way, because at seventy, you'll discover that someday, long from now, I guess, <laughs> um, at seventy, you suddenly hear the psalmist's voice in your ear, who says, "The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by strength eighty years." And you know that you know that it's time to start reaping the harvest, and to say, "What do I still want to do in my life?" And and that voice, "Where are you?" comes back again in a new way. And um, it's been speaking to me very loudly for these last six years, and has made me a very a very creative and giving and loving person. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, one of our favorite authors that we we refer to. Um, a lot on our show is is uh, the uh, Franciscan uh, Father Richard Rohr, um, who talks a lot about the limitations uh, with dualism and dualistic thinking, and and uh, when speaking about the transcendent specifically. And you also mention issues with dualism within your book, and I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. So uh, let's go back to the first chapter of Genesis. Everything that's created is created in pairs. Heaven and earth, light and darkness, day and night, dry land and sea, sun and moon, male and female, everything is pairs. It's the beginning of duality. Only God is one. In Hebrew, the book of Genesis begins with the letter bet. Uh, Bereshit is in the beginning. And that letter b in Hebrew, also serves as the number two. So creation is the beginning of duality, the beginning of multiplicity. Sometimes I like to say 
the one decides to put on the coat of many colors and become the many. Multiplicity flows forth from the oneness of being. That's a different way of understanding creation. Of course, I'm not a biblical literalist. I'm not a creationist. You know that. I'm a, I'm a believer in evolution. But evolution is also a way of saying, in the beginning, God created. It's our new creation story. And it, too, is a sacred story. That's very important to me. And I say that in the first chapter of the book. Evolution. We have to make evolution into a new sacred story. We have to discover the divine element, the divine mystery in every stage of the evolutionary process. This great, this great, great wonder called, called the evolution of, of life on our planet. How did it happen? How did it happen that descendants of one-celled creatures beneath the sea grew complex enough to be able to step onto dry land? And how did it happen that, uh, that ecology so developed that flowers and bees would be in the same area so they could so they could um, fructify one another. How did it happen that, that, um, etc., etc., etc. All that, all that is, all that is the great divine mystery of evolution, and that is the one entering into the dance of multiplicity, the one putting on the coat of many colors, the one that begins toing, the one that begins multiplying and begins saying, I will enter into the realm of the two so that there be reproduction, so that there be generation. Um, and uh, and therefore, therefore, the Kabbalistic language, we you know, is very much a sexual language. The, 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 the language of, of pairing of male and female is very much part of the Kabbalistic secret of being, of how being came to, came to exist. But it all goes back to that ultimate one that underlies all the twos. So, uh, so to play the game in Hebrew, as I say, creation begins with b, with bet, and bet means two. It's the it's the language of it's the origin of duality. But at Sinai, when God speaks and says, "I am," Anochi, "I am," begins with Aleph, because that's when the One reveals itself uh, as standing behind the multiple universe. Oh man. So we want to be sensitive to your time. So uh, uh, I think the uh, the right question to, to end on, I think, is is something that we're fascinated with and that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, which is um, the the role of myth uh, when it comes to sacred texts and specifically and how we how we see myth as being different than the the connotation that the word has taken on in, in modern times, and uh, specifically that within scripture. Um, you know, there's some something can be truer uh, than true without being historically uh, necessarily true. And I know you yeah. talk about this a lot with the uh, Eden story and, and Cain and Abel. I just wondered if you could go into that a little bit. Yes, I'm all for what I call the remythologization of religion. We went through a period of demythologization from Kant on, uh, from 19th century on, and now we have to recover the myths that we once laid aside. Um, in the third chapter of the book, I have a section about myth, um, because myth to me means a story that reveals a truth that is so profound and mysterious, you couldn't know it except by knowing that story. And so the story hides that truth within it, but it also reveals it. If I just told you that truth, it would it would become flat and dogmatic. But if I if I if I ensconce it in 
in the in the living reality of myth, then it becomes then it becomes living and and vibrant and dynamic. However, however, myth is very dangerous stuff. Remember, some very bad people have used myth in the course of the twentieth century. Remember the Aryan myths of the Nazis and the and the nationalist myths that 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 arose in in, in various parts of Europe uh, in the in the early twentieth century. The essentialism of of the true Romanian or Hungarian or Italian spirit, which was going to which was going to reassert itself and purify itself of all these dirty foreigners. I'm one of those dirty foreigners, as you know, and so I am. I am very sensitive to the dangers of myth. It can't just be my myth against your myth, because then we have World War Three. Uh, exactly. So, so I want to say myths, myths that are about myths that are about the universal human situation, what it means to be a human being, what it means to live in the world. How we seek for truth, how we nurture our lives, how we raise children. Those myths are very profound and valuable. But myths that are about one group of people against another group of people, we have to be wary of and, uh, and protect ourselves against. Whether they're the myths of white people against black people or mud people against, uh, against this kind of people. Um, it's not simply it's not simply that all myth is good. Myth is a very valuable tool, but I think the the vehicle is the universalism, the universality of the myth, and um, and and the universal myths will save us from the from the uh, from the racist and nationalist and misogynist myths that also exist out there. So uh, so. Myth is something. Myth is a tool to be used with a lot of with a lot of discernment, but we can't have a spiritual life without it. Oh, that's perfect! I can't think of a better way to uh, to end our conversation today. John, can we, <laughs> could we please, deconstructionist listeners, please, let's let's blow Art Green up. Yes. Everybody needs to know about this guy. Yes. I remember, and we, I remember the first time that you and I, because Adam and I, like, when we will we'll, like order a ton of books, uh, when we're like thinking of like guests we're going to have on or like themes that we want to explore, and we'll get these books, we'll start to read them, and then we, we just kind of, you know, have a sit down and we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And we're like, hey man, you know, what did you think about this? Like, these are the points that stuck out to me in this book. And I remember it was funny, like when you and I first talked about this book mm-hmm. and this guy, um, it was kind of like the first time that we ever talked about like when we had read Falling Up or like um the first time we read Pete Rollins or like Tillich, Tillich or you name it, you know, where we were just like, whoa. Oh, good. What this guy is doing is just like 
I mean, I, we were just talking about this before we started to record. Like, it, it makes me see this 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 very very uh, obvious connection mm-hmm. in between those practicing kind of like uh, mysticism amongst different religions mm-hmm. and how they're speaking a lot of the same language. I'm not saying that they're all the same. No, I, I know but, exactly what you mean. I mean, I yeah. think I can't remember who the there's a quote that I just recently read where it was like, you know, while all the where all the theologians of the world have all like, you know, been busy arguing over the centuries, the mystics were all like, whatever. Like they <laughs> yeah. were all they were all just like speaking the same language, hanging out, like keeping it together, like holding it at the center. Yeah. You know, the mystics of all the religions that are aware, uh, like, oh, that great Meister Eckhart quote, like anytime you say God, you say less than God. Right. You know, you can't nominate God. Like, I pray God rid me of God. You know, yeah. like that kind of stuff. And like when he talks about, like we're going to put in the show notes that that uh, sermon that he gave at that uh, that synagogue. Or, yeah, there's uh, a podcast. Um, so if, if you go on iTunes or whatever whatever uh, podcast device or app that you that you happen to use, if you search Congregation Emmanuel, E-M-A-N-U-E-L, or just search uh, Arthur Green in there, mm-hmm. um, it, it's under that that church's or that temple's podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's a talk that he gave on no- November twenty first, twenty fourteen. Just on the breath of God. The name of God being the breath of God, being, 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 you know, mystery, being, oh, yes. So good. Like amazing, wonderful stuff. Um, yeah. Oh, it, it, there, there are so many things I love about this. I think, you know, if you get the book Radical Judaism, first thing you're going to look in, you're going to look at the cover and you're going to go, oh. <laughs> it's about Judaism. And then you're going to open this thing up and hear him say things like this, the spiritual work that each of us has to do consists, consists primarily of letting go, allowing that presence to enter our consciousness and transform us. He says, if you believe as I do that the presence of God is everywhere, our chief task is that of becoming aware. That kind of stuff. Yes. That kind of stuff. We, we started talking about, uh, about this in the intro. We, I don't think we finished the thought, but like Adam and I were just talking about how this is like the worst title of a book ever because it doesn't <laughs> it really is it doesn't do the book justice and i i it's it it, it says it radical judaism right. but it's so much bigger than it's that it's so much bigger than that um i looked at that book and I, the title kind of said to me like okay so you've been kind of jewish now it's time to like go radical with your judaism and really it's more like what rob bell would say or you know i can't even remember if he got it from somewhere else where he talks about the word rad you know mm-hmm. radish radical comes from the latin radix which means like root and it's like going back to the, and that is exactly what he's doing he's taking us back to the roots of these basic words based like torah yahweh um the the concept of the image of god the people of god these basic 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 concepts and he's showing kind of like tillichwood or heschelwood um the vast both mystical and very concrete practical just transcendence that's in all that stuff that's around us. So I guess, you know, a good question that I want to start incorporating a little bit in these little kind of rehashings that we do at the end of these episodes, because I think this will be helpful for, for people, is like, in terms of like construction, in terms of like, you know, deconstruction, reconstruction, just the journey of faith, how, how does this kind of thinking, John, make you think new things how does it how does it expand your mind like how how is this aiding in your in your journey like when you 
read things like Art Green, when you hear him say the kinds of things that he just said, like what, what, what does it do to you? Well, for, for me, I think that the two things primary, primarily that it does is number one, it, it gives me hope because I see and identify with so much of the material that he's talking about, these universal things uh, that he discusses in the book. And I'm like, you know what? We're, we're not really that far away. It's just we're not seeking to understand. Mm. And once we do seek to understand, it feels like a lot of that crap just kind of goes away. Oh. You know? And, and I think that's the biggest thing, like, especially in today's day and age, man, like, it's hard to be on social media some days because you just see, um, you just see so much of the, the, the byproduct of all of the um, disagreements and the, and the areas where we don't get along and we yeah. don't seek to understand and 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 we you know we just assume things about one another instead of actually getting to know your neighbor yeah man um so this gives me a lot of hope man it just it really does and uh i, I think it was um it may have been roar bell uh somebody a long time ago said you know a, a lot of times by reading other religion re- religions you you start to appreciate certain things about your own religion that much more Absolutely. Or you, you understand it a little mm. bit better. And we said this when we, we had Wolpe on. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're primarily a Jewish people originally. You yeah. Know? Jesus was a Jew. No. We forget this. No. <laughs> yeah. No. He, and he wore Levi's. <laughs> he had Converse All-Stars. <laughs> Levi, uh, or at least Birkenstocks. 5'10s for sure. Maybe 5'11s. And he was white. Super skinny. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, it's like we forget, like, we were born out of this great tradition of Judaism. And mm. so like, who else, who else, you know, would we want to talk to when we're talking about the, the old Testament specifically? Uh, you know, if we want to get a different perspective or like a fresh set, you know, fresh perspective on, on some of the old stories that we've read time and time again. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, what, what this did, that's very similar to reading um, Richard Rohr, Paul Tillich, Pete Rollins, you know, Rob Bell, um, a, a lot of the guys that we've had on the show, the thing that gets me excited, like it, it gets me just op- like you use the word hope, um, being a seven on the Enneagram, uh, I use, use words like exciting <laughs> and, <laughs> and optimistic and, and things like that. Cause I just, I, I just feel so good about where this, this whole conversation globally can continue to go. And, and for me personally, coming back to my tradition, when I hear things like this, I think what started off this whole podcast was we were feeling claustrophobic. The room was too small. The truths were too small. Um, There was too much cockiness and confidence, and there was too many periods and not enough question marks. There were too many periods and not enough ellipses. And, And what I see in this is it's, oh, no. You don't know the bounds of this. Yeah. This is pervasive it's it's universal it's huge it's expansive it's inviting it's it you know it's a journey every word in this book this little book radical judaism opened up a whole new world to something that i had considered complacent and and dry and it's like oh this is so big yeah it's amazing it's kind of like when you're stuck in traffic and you're just kind of like you've got a low grade, just bitterness kind of going on. And it's just like, you know what I mean? Like just a low grade, just hum of bitterness, just about like your whole situation at that current moment. Yeah. Or you're late and you know, and like if for two seconds, you can just remember 
that we are on a ball of debris <laughs> hurtling through an infinite multiverse, probably, that is so expansive. And with our best technology, we haven't found any spot in this world where life is even possible. Yeah. And yet here I am stuck in traffic. Yeah. You know, when, when, when the, sometimes you need a wide angle to make you appreciate your tiny little space. Yeah. And that's what I feel like a lot of these guys do. And that's why I love this journey that we continue to just invite people into. It's, oh, I love it. I imagine it's, it's similar to uh, like the first time like a scientist walked up to somebody and was like, and like the prevalent thought at the time was like, yeah, the earth is the center of the galaxy. <laughs> and he's like, actually, no, there are like billions of other stars yeah. besides yours. And then like blew this guy's mind. And then. You know, and then and then at one point in our lifetime, they thought that the universe was like ceasing to expand or whatever, mm -hmm. and that it was like slowing down, right? Because it, it theoretically it kind of should have been, yeah. And Until then we, they find out dark nope. matter and dark energy come into the <laughs> equation. They're like, actually, it's expanding at a rapid pace, <laughs> it's, and it's speeding up. Yeah, yeah. They're like, what? What? So this what thing never about? ends. I, I love it. It hurts my brain, but at the same time, I'm like, that is the coolest thing. I mean, because I'll close with this yeah. to, to tie it back to like, um, you know, at the end of the day, you and I, um, uh, identify as Christian and we're going to, I think going to continue to do so. Sure. Uh, I don't want to speak for you. Why not? Yeah. I'll still love you, John. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but, um, to tie this back to our, you know, and then I'll stop rambling cause obviously I could just keep doing this, but like to tie it back to like our, our tradition. I think one of the fundamental things I learned when I was a kid is, you know, we're supposed to worship. And that I remember reading, my dad walked me through Proverbs when I was a kid and uh, it said, you know, the fear of the Lord, you know, is the beginning of knowledge. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I have realized through this journey that I've gone on with you and through all these people that we've talked to, and it's hopefully never going to stop, is that I think worship starts with feeling small and significant at the same time. It's like this this texture, this tension of wonder where a huge realization comes into a very small space. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. almost like the Doctor Who, <laughs> like, yeah, it's this tiny little, was that, didn't was Pete that Rollins just say this or something? Somebody just said this, <laughs> where it's like this tiny little space. But when you know what's inside that thing, it's bigger than the, everything. That was a Sarah Bessie reference, wasn't it? That was just for Sarah Bessie. That just was now. just for Sarah Bessie, just, just there. <laughs> so, so this is all about making me a better worshiper. Yeah. It's about making me a better Christian, honestly. Yeah. That's taking it more seriously and packing more significance into this tiny little package of, of me and my consciousness. And I just love it, man. It just, the reverence and the humility that comes out of letting it be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I, never get sick of this no nope and we will always be excited because if we can continue to bring you guests like this there's no reason not to be so please go get his book please um go tweet about him facebook about him uh get the word out this guy's doing a tremendous work and uh we can't can't recommend it high enough um the band this week is actually uh from some listeners uh they're a band called holy fools and they just had an album that came out. Um, oh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I got your name backwards. The, the album is called Holy Fools. 
The band is called Wild Earth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me get that right. I'm super stoked to have them on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wild Earth. Sorry, guys. Wild Earth. Your album is called Holy Fools, but it came out on August 11th. So it'll be out by the time this podcast airs, which is a day after my birthday. Guys, if you really want to do it up, you should have done it on my birthday. Come on. On the 10th. Come on. Come on. But uh, Happy birthday, John. Thank you, man. Happy <laughs> birthday to you, too. <laughs> both, Adam just had one. Both August birthdays. And we're going to go out and celebrate this oh, week. Yeah, we so. are. Uh, but uh, go check out their music. It's really, really good stuff. We've gotten a chance to preview some of their their tracks before the album came out. Um, can't recommend it enough. Beautiful stuff. And uh, we also have some other big news coming up. Our Patreon campaign will finally be launching. It may even have been launched by the airing of this episode. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Depends on how our work dinner goes tonight. So, <laughs> but uh, so thank you guys in advance. Anybody who who um, you know has has emailed us and and asked about this, and we're sorry it's taken so long. We're very very busy, so um, we worked really hard to get this thing done and out there. Um, and we're really excited about some of the uh, packages and stuff that we put together. For yeah, you guys. we're just excited to have another way to connect to you guys because at the end of the day, we want to just create more and more opportunities for that. That is all we're about. The connection that comes with all this idea sharing and this community and this keeping each other company on the wild, weird journey that we're all on. Um, So thank you for now. Yeah. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Grace and peace, everybody.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.